Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Talk Recorded live. Uh, thank you and welcome again uh, to Restoring America in Time Truth. And I'm going to continue my reading of Last Day's Madness, The Folly of Trying to Predict When Christ Will Return by Gary DeMar. And today I'm going to uh, read Chapter 1, The Dating Game. Dip into any period of history and you will find a bevy of prophets who claimed they knew when the next end-time event would occur. Some have pointed to the rise in apostasy, unbridled licentiousness, and an intense in rival, increase in rival religions as unmistakable signs that, end, that the end must be near. Finding hidden meaning in numbers from the Bible was another favorite pastime that assured the faithful that the end had to be at hand. Earthquakes, wars, and plagues gave impetus for others to predict the near demise of planet Earth time and time and time again. In the second century, Tertullian in Ad Nationas wrote, What terrible wars, both foreign and domestic, what pestilences, famines, and quakings of the Earth has history recorded as this? This theme has been repeated over and over with the same results. A great deal of speculative certainty, but no end happens. In the 6th century, Pope Gregory assured the world that the end could not be far off since so many signs were observable to the eye that was willing to see. Quote, of all the signs described by our Lord as presaging the end of the world, some will see already accomplished. For we now see that nation rises against nation and that they press and weigh upon the land in our own times as never before in the annals of the past. Earthquakes overwhelm countless cities as we often hear from other parts of the world. Pestilence we endure without interruption. It is true that we do not behold signs in the sun and moon and stars, but that these are not far off, we may, we may infer from the changes of the atmosphere. Peculiar sectarian cults arose during periods of hype and hysteria when end-time prophetic speculation was fueled by both present crises and expected promises of imminent catastrophe. Quote, at first sight, one could hardly imagine two more dissimilar ideas. The first suggests death and desolation, the second, salvation and fulfillment. Yet the two intertwine again and again. Those who regard the millennium as imminent expect disasters to pave the way. The present order, evil and entrenched, can hardly be expected to give way of itself or dissolve overnight. End quote. Some took advantage of these perilous times and heightened eschatological expectation to agitate the faithful, 
knowing that men cleave to hopes of imminent worldly salvation only when the hammer blows of disaster destroy the world they have known and render them susceptible to ideas which they would earlier have cast aside. Others stirred the revolutionary fires in those preoccupied in those preoccupied with a coming eschatological era. The zealous were duped into joining a vision of, of a new moral order, a world purified and freed from conflict and hatred, a world based on socialistic and communistic ideals. The end, according to these millennial aspirants, has to be coaxed along through the machinations of men and the machine of war. Adolf Hitler, for example, secularized the biblical idea of the millennium with his own vision of a thousand-year Reich, the Third Reich. As Hitler demonstrated, a population's interest in a new world order, any variety will do, can go beyond the seemingly harmless hobby of calculating the return of Christ based on biblical numerics. After 12 years, 4 months, and 8 days, an age of darkness to all but a multitude of Germans, and now ending in a bleak night for them too, the thousand-year Reich had come to an end. It had raised this great nation and this resourceful but so easily misled people to heights of power and conquest they had never before experienced and now it had dissolved with a suddenness and a completeness that had few, if any, parallels in history. Interest in end-time scenarios do not have to result in the unrivaled evil of a Hitler. Preoccupation with the end can act as a cultural sedative, leaving the world to its own inescapable eschatological certainties giving man little impetus to effect change beyond his own isolated individualistic world. While society collapses, the population grows in its despair and joins the cult of expanded consciousness, health, and personal growth so prevalent today. If the end is perceived as just around the corner, then why bother? Why not indulge the ego? Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Repeated in Isaiah 22.13, 1 Corinthians 15.32. But is the evidence for the end of time, the end of the world, the last days, really there? Could the prophecy pundits be wrong, as they have been wrong for almost two millennia? Should we take seriously these assessments of our time when both saints and sinners agree so readily? The end is near again. The small and the great, the sane and the insane, the sacred and the profane, have been quick to predict when the end might come. They all have one thing in common. They have always been wrong, at least so far. Each and every generation has put together the details of what it believes are certain biblical prophecies to assure the world that they know that the end is near. For example, Billy Graham and Barbara Streisand 
two people on totally different ends of the spiritual spectrum, have at least one thing in common. They both believe that we cannot hold out much longer. Billy Graham wrote, if you look in any direction, whether it is technological or physiological, the world as we know it is coming to an end. Scientists predict it. Sociologists talk about it. Whether you go to the Soviet Union or anywhere in the world, they are talking about it. The world is living in a state of shock, end quote. There certainly is much truth in Dr. Graham's assessment of world conditions, but there is no biblical proof that we are living on the edge of history, on the edge of eternity. <coughs> As we will see, others evaluated world conditions in their day and came to similar conclusions. As history attests, however, they were wrong. History came and history went. The world is still here. Maybe we ought to turn to those outside the church. Is it possible that they might have some insight? Take, for example, singer and entertainer Barbara Streisand. Quote, Barbara says, I believe the world is coming to an end. I just feel that science, technology, and the mind have surpassed the soul, the heart. There is no balance in terms of feeling and love for fellow man. End quote. We are in deep trouble when the church begins to sound like the world. Of course, someone like Barbara Streisand may have no hope beyond the grave. Billy Graham's message is certainly different when it comes to the glories of heaven. But the effect is the same if their predictions do not come to pass. A lack of credibility in any new but similar message. Certainly the Bible asserts unequivocally that there will be an end, that Jesus will come a second time at the end of time. The church has faithfully made this doctrine a part of her creeds. The Apostles' Creed is the most familiar. Jesus ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. In addition, the creed sets forth the certainty of the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Today's church should take lesson from this classic creedal formulation and stay out of the prophetic speculation business. Prophetic deja vu. As early as the second century, prophets were suggesting dates for the second coming of Christ. The prophet Montanus in the second century was one of the first to propose such a date. He proclaimed the imminent appearance of the new Jerusalem, the signal for which was to be a, a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Montanus, a new convert to Christianity, believed himself to be the appointed prophet of God. Two prophetesses, prophetesses Prisca and Maximilla, soon joined him. They claimed to be mouthpieces of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the Greek title used in John's Gospel for the Holy Spirit. The Montanist failed attempts at predicting the end did not deter other date setters. In the third century, a prophet called Novation gathered a huge following by crying, Come, Lord Jesus! Donatus, a fourth century prophet, commanded attention when he stressed that only 144,000 people would be chosen by God. 
he found this magic figure in Revelation 14, verse 1, a verse which the Jehovah's Witnesses used to proclaim their own version of this heresy. Both Novation and Donatus were branded as heretics by the church. The sack of Rome by the Vandals in A.D. 410 was supposed to bring on the end the birth of the Inquisition, 1209 to 1244, prompted many well-meaning saints to conclude that it was the beginning of the end. The Inquisition was the beginning of the end. The Black Death that killed millions was viewed as the prelude toward the de- to the demise of the world, the end of the world. This was in 1347 to 1350. The plague disrupted society at all levels. Giovanni Boccaccio wrote a vivid description of how some people responded. Much of it reads like the prelude to the end and the indifference that it often brings. For some, debauchery was the road to salvation, or if there was to be no salvation from the plague, to happiness in the few days that remain. These profligates abandoned all work and drifted from house to house, drinking, stealing, and fornicating. People behaved as though their days were numbered, Boccaccio wrote, and treated their belongings and their own persons with equal abandon. Hence, most houses had become common property, and any passing stranger could make himself at home. In the face of so much affliction and misery, all respect for the laws of God and man had virtually broken down. Those ministers and executors of the laws who were not either dead or ill were left with so few subordinates that they were unable to discharge any of their duties. Hence, everyone was free to behave as he pleased. Martin Luther frequently expressed the opinion that the end was very near. This is Martin Luther, the great reformer. Frequently expressed the opinion that the end was very near, though he felt it was unwise to predict an exact date. Christians, he said, no more know the exact time of Christ's return than little babies in their mother's bodies know about their arrival. This, however, did not stop him from concluding that the end was not too far off. In January 1532, Martin Luther wrote, The last day is at hand. My calendar has run out. I know nothing more in my scriptures. As it turned out, there was a lot more time to go after 1532. Many other disasters, natural and political, gave rise to the same speculation century after century. Disasters on the front page of newspapers send far too many Christians scurrying to the back pages of their Bibles. Contemporary events like the Lisbon earthquake of 1755 were interpreted as evidence of the fulfillment of biblical prophecies. Above all, the French Revolution excited a spate of interpretations on both sides of the Atlantic designed to show that the world was entering upon the last days. Millennialism was widely espoused by leading scholars and divines. In America, the names Timothy Dwight, the president of Yale, John Livingston, president of Rutgers, and Joseph Priestley can't come to mind. In Britain, George Stanley Faber, Edward King, and Edward Irving. A spate of pamphlets and sermons by 
Church of England clergy and Orthodox American ministers poured forth from the 1790s. And there was a constant reference back to the prophetical studies of Sir Isaac Newton, Joseph Mead, and William Whiston. The usual method of interpretation was some variant of the year-day theory by which days mentioned in the prophecies were counted as years, weeks as seven-year periods, and months as 30 years. There was general agreement in the late 18th century that the 1260 days mentioned in Revelation 12, verse 6, were to be interpreted as 1260 years, and that this period was now ended. An alternative theory, which became increasingly popular after 1800, emphasized the importance of the 2300-year period of Daniel 8.14 and the cleansing of the sanctuary, which would fall due sometime in the 1840s. The fulfillment of the time prophecies meant that mankind was living in the last days, that the midnight cry might soon be heard, and that the coming of the Messiah might be expected shortly. Such beliefs had an influence far beyond the members of explicitly Adventist sects. They were part and parcel of everyday evangelical religion. The lessons of history are recorded for all to heed. For many, however, the past is a distant memory. All that counts is the present. Sure, they were wrong, but it will be different for us. The first millennium. As the last day of 999 approached, right before one, the year 1000 A.D., the old basilica of St. Peter's at Rome was thronged with a mass of weeping and trembling worshipers awaiting the end of the world, believing that they were on the eve of the millennium. Land, homes, and household goods were given to the poor as a final act of contrition to absolve the hopeless from sins of a lifetime. Some Europeans sold their goods before traveling to Palestine to await the second coming. This mistaken application of biblical prophecy happened again in the year 1100, 1200, and 1245. Prophetic speculation continued. In 1531, Melchior Hoffman announced that the second coming would take place in the year 1533. Nicholas Cusa held that the world would not last past 1734. As the second millennium approaches, we can expect increased activity among the prophetic speculators. Lester Sumrall wrote in his book, I Predict 2000 A.D., I predict the absolute fullness of man's operation on planet Earth by the year 2000 A.D. Then Jesus Christ shall reign from, he- from Jerusalem for a thousand years. In Armageddon now, 1977, Dwight Wilson observed that there had been no significant increase regarding hazardous speculation because the quarter century that remains makes the year 2000 too far removed to to induce a sense of crisis or terror. But as it approaches, the cry of impending doom may be expected to swell. 
to the extent that this cry is reinforced by continuing crisis in the Middle East, there will grow an ever more deafening roar of Armageddon now. Remember, this was written in 1977, a full 14 years before Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Or what we have today, the war in Afghanistan and the Middle East and Syria and all of that either. Was Wilson right? Michael Dahl predicted in the midnight cry that the present era would end in 1980. Reginald Edward Duncan predicted in the coming Russian invasion of America that the millennium would begin in 1979. Emil Gaverluck of the Southwest Radio Church predicted that the rapture would occur in 1981. The year 1988 saw a full palette of books predicting the rapture of the church since this was the final year of the terminal generation because of the resettlement of the nation of Israel in 1948, which began the prophetical clock, as Hal Lindsey says. The most infamous was 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. Upon the release of his calculations and his book, Wisenant, remarked, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong, and I say that unequivocally. There is no way biblically that I can be wrong, and I say that to every preacher in town. He was wrong. When the author's intricate system of predicting the end failed, he went on undaunted with a new book called The Final Shout, The Rapture Report, 1989. It seems that he had made a critical error because he was following the wrong calendar. My mistake was that my mathematical calculations were off by one year. Since all centuries should begin with a zero year, for instance, the year 1900 started this century. The first century A.D. was a year short consisting of only 99 years. This was the one-year error of my calculations last year in 1988. The Gregorian calendar, the calendar used today, is always one year in advance of the true year. Numbered correctly from the beginning, that is, 1 A.D., 1989 Gregorian would be only 1,988 years of 365.2422 days each year. Wizenant was not alone in 1988. Others got last day's madness, too. Clifford Hill writes that two young men from Denmark announced that they were the two witnesses, Revelation 11, verse 3, sent by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. Two years earlier, I had met two young Americans camping on the Mount of Olives, also claiming to be the two witnesses. On the heels of Edgar Wisenhunt came Grant Jeffrey who wrote Armageddon Appointment by Destiny. By February 1990, 144,000 were in print of his books. Jeffrey writes that through his own research into biblical prophecies, he has discovered the number of indications which suggest that the year A.D. 2000 is a probable termination date for the last days. His argument is little different from that of Edgar 
Wisenhunt's 88 Reasons thesis. Instead of Wisenhunt's 365.2422 days, Jeffrey concludes that a biblical year is made up of only 360 days. And his reasoning is here. Part of Jeffrey's interpretation is based on where Jesus stopped reading a portion of Scripture from Isaiah. Supposedly, the day of vengeance, Isaiah 61, verse 2, has been postponed for nearly 2,000 years. There is nothing in the New Testament that would lead one to this interpretation. Nothing in the Bible says this. In fact, Luke's Gospel later indicates that the days of vengeance, Luke 21, 22, is a past event since these days refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 by the Romans. Of course, the days of vengeance were future for those who first heard them back in the days of Jesus. With this in mind, we can put forth a different explanation for the reason Jesus stopped reading where he did. Jesus began his public ministry by reading from the Old Testament scripture that identified him as the promised Messiah. He would spend three years preaching and teaching to learn how he would be received by his own countrymen. They despised and rejected him, turning him over to the Roman authorities to be crucified as a common criminal. But you disowned the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. Acts three fourteen and 15. Their, cries, their cry was, we have no king but Caesar, John 19, verse 15. Near the end of Jesus' ministry, he continued to read the prophecy of Isaiah 61, verse 2, and Isaiah 63, verse 4, by warning his disciples of the coming days of vengeance that will befall their city and sanctuary, the temple. In fact, Jesus tells them that this will befall their generation their own generation, not some future postponed 2,000-year-in-the-future generation. Matthew 24, 34, Mark 13, 30, Luke 21, 32. Anyway, is it sound biblical interpretation to base a doctrine on what Jesus did not read? There is nothing complicated in all of this. All one has to do is follow the words and themes throughout the scripture. There is no need for complicated mathematical schemes to determine hidden timetables that are not self-evident for all to see and understand. When God wants to set a timetable, he sets a timetable. Seven years in Genesis 45 verse 6. Forty years in Numbers 14.34. Seventy years in Jeremiah 25 verse 10. 430 years in Genesis 15, 13. As we'll see in this in chapter 1 discussion of Daniel's 70 weeks, when teachers of prophetic themes like Jeffrey read about a specific period of time that does not fit their own system, they must manipulate the numbers by inserting gaps where none should exist. There was a lull in the prophetic scene after the dismal failure of 88 reasons. Then Iraq invaded Kuwait. 
The prophecy books once again came rolling off the presses. Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth found new life, nearing its 110th printing. John F. Walvoord reissued an updated and revised Armageddon oil and the Middle East crisis. Walvoord claimed that Saddam Hussein's move into Kuwait was motivated by a desire to set up a power base from which to attack Israel. Charles Dyer, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, claimed that modern Babylon was a fulfillment of end-time prophecy. To prove it, he wrote, Rise of Babylon, Sign of the End Times. Is the year 2000 a magic number for the prophetic speculators as Wilson predicted? Even before the war was, even before the war in Iraq, a number of books hit the market warning that the end was near. David Allen Lewis came out with Prophecy 2000 rushing to Armageddon in 1990. The first chapter begins, the year 2000, it is like magic. You see it everywhere, like a universal logo. Dave Hunt issued Global Peace and the Rise of Antichrist in 1990. This book was the work was in the works before Hussein lost Kuwait. It too predicts an imminent rapture. What will happen in, if the year 2000 comes and goes with no change on the prophetic clock? And it did, right? All of these predictions that the end of the world would be in 2000, in the year 2000. Right now we're in 2015. There are predictions that we're close to the end. We're the terminal generation now. How can the world last very much longer? Things of that nature. What will happen if the year 2000 or if the year 2020 comes and goes with no change on the prophetic clock or 2050 or 2100 or 2500? Will the Christian faith be labeled a false religion because of its repeated failures to predict the end with certainty? How many of the faithful will suffer despair over dashed expectations? Crying Wolf. Historian Mark Knoll gives us a warning. The verdict of history seems clear. Great spiritual gain comes from living under the expectation of Christ's return. But wisdom and restraint are also in order. At the very least, it would be well for those in our age who predict details and dates for the end to remember how many before them have misread the signs of the times. As children, we learned Aesop's fables of the shepherd boy and the wolf. A mischievous lad who was set to mind some sheep used in jest to cry, Wolf, wolf! When the people at work in the neighboring fields came running to the spot, he would laugh at them for their pains. One day the wolf came in reality, and the boy this time called Wolf Wolf in earnest. But the men, having been so often deceived, disregarded his cries, and the sheep were left at the mercy of the wolf. Of course, if you cry long enough, you just might be the one to get it right. But then there might not be anyone listening to you. Preaching about the end of the world has long been used by religious groups as a way of pleading with the lost to commit themselves to Jesus Christ because there isn't much time before the end. 
Such a motivating device can backfire on even the most well-intentioned evangelist. What happens if a listener shouts out, preachers like you have been telling us for decades that the world is coming to an end? Why should we believe you now? By crying wolf and being wrong each time, the church is perceived as unreliable. I can just hear some of them. If these self-proclaimed prophets were wrong on the timing of Jesus' return when they seem so certain, particularly about the rapture and the seven-year tribulation, then maybe they are wrong on other issues where they teach with such equal certainty. In addition, if one is positive that there is not much time left before the world falls apart, then why spend time fixing what is destined to break? Or, as some have put it, why polish brass on a sinking ship? For numerous modern-day prophets, it's April the 14th, 1912, and the Titanic Earth has hit an iceberg, and she's sinking fast. That's the end of the chapter. Chapter 1, The Dating Game in Last Day's Madness by Gary DeMar. Let me suggest this to you. What I believe is that we should, instead of looking at all of this as the end of time, as the coming of Jesus Christ, we ought to look at it as God's judgment upon nations in history. God has repeatedly throughout history, I mean, the Old Testament is filled with examples of God judging nations, God judging people for their wickedness, God judging foreign nations, God judging uh, other nations. And the, the application of that is that we all must repent and live according to God's law. This is the call repeatedly, repent and return to the law. The Bible says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, and the knowledge that they lack is the knowledge of rejecting the law of God. They have rejected the law of God. This is what we need to return to, a clear, full, wholehearted, complete application of God's law to our lives today. We need to live the same all the time, prepared for the coming of Christ if he comes today or if he doesn't come for another thousand years. What if Jesus doesn't come for another thousand years? How is that going to affect our life? How will that affect history and our attitude toward history, if we knew that, well, we might put it off, we might compromise in our life until we think we're about to die and stand before God in judgment. That would be wrong to do that. We need to be ready all the time. We need to be prepared all the time. We don't know when the Lord is coming. We don't know when we're going to die. We need to be prepared. We need to live a consistent, obedient life under the law of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not in our own flesh, but in the new creation that we have been given by God in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, please give us a vision of your truth about the future, about history, that it might affect our life in a positive way for you. May your kingdom come, 
May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.